Okay, let's get started. Recording in progress. So I wanted to focus on tonight the Ibn Ezra's commentary on Miguel Sester in anticipation of Purim. Uh, the Ibn Ezra has a few fundamental points that he makes in the Megillah, which I would like to cover. So the first is, as we begin, that the Ibn Ezra says like this, that we know that the Megillah does not have Hashem's name in it. And the Ibn Ezra says, why? Why is it that the Megillah doesn't have Hashem's name? Why do we not find it? So says the Ibn Ezra, we have to first understand who wrote the Megillah. Mordechai wrote the Megillah, and he wrote it without Hashem's name. And the reason that he wrote it without Hashem's name was because there was a decent likelihood that the Megillah would be copied by the chroniclers of Persia, those that would write over the history of the uh, Persian Empire, and where they would see the Shem Hashem, they would replace it with their god, they would replace it with their idol. So therefore, as it were, in honor of Hashem, it's better to be haster dover, kvod Hashem haster dover, more honorable to God, not to give him an explicit mention in the Megillah. There are those that say, says the Ibn Ezra, that at the time when Mordechai is trying to convince Esther to go into Achashverish, and Achashverish um, has a rule that if you don't get his permission, it could be off with your head if you go to see him inappropriately. And this seems to be a theme in the Megillah, that not everybody is allowed to see the king. So the Ibn Ezra brings this up a number of times. For example, on the Pasuk of HaYeshvim Rishayna Bamalchus, those that sit, uh, the, the, what the Megillah calls the Roye Pinea Melech, those that see the face of the king, HaYeshvim Rishayna Bamalchus, who are first, who are sitting in the front row, as it were, Says the Ibn Ezra because there were different rows. There are four different rows, as he says, is clear in the Persian books. So therefore, the Roye Pinayamelch, those that see the face of the king, that isn't available to everybody. That is a special treat. So not everyone can avail themselves to seeing the king. And therefore, it's a big deal that Esther goes in unannounced, and only certain people who are get to the first rank, are able to see the king. They are called the Roye Pnei And he also explains that we know that in the uh, story after the second party, when it becomes clear that Esther is a, from the Jewish nation and she's here to save them, the response of, of uh, Haman was to uh, you know, prostrate himself to, in front of Esther to try to gain her forgiveness, sympathy, some sort of respite. And um, the Pasa tells us, Haman Chafu says the Ibn Ezra, they basically covered his face with a mask. He was no longer able to see the king because he was no longer part of that inner circle. Seeing the king is something that was reserved for something special. So in the course of those psukum, when Esther is trying uh, initially to wiggle her way out, of doing Mordechai's bidding and going to see Achashverosh. So she says that everyone knows that if you're going to go into the king without being called, it could be off with your head. So Mordechai's response to her was that, listen, one thing is clear, the Jewish people will be saved no matter what. Mordechai says, in the language of the Megillah, that... Mordechai tells Esther, I'm not worried about the Jewish people being saved. The Jewish people will certainly be saved. The thing is, I don't know about you. Maybe this is the reason why you in fact became the queen. And the words that he used is, from another place. And there are those that want to suggest that that's a reference to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Makom 
we know, right, Hamakom Yenachem Meschem Besuch Shavar, you say Hamakom, Hamakom is a reference to Akash Baruch Hu. So therefore, suggest the, the uh, Ibn Ezra, perhaps that's a pshah to say that Makaim is a reference here to Hashem. Says the Ibn Ezra, no, Makaim is only a reference to Hashem. Akash Baruch Hu is Makaim Meshul Olam, Ve'ena Olam Makaimai. This idea of referring to God as the place, this is a later invention from Chazal. You never find God referred to as a makayim in Tanakh. You find sometimes ma'ayin as a residence, but not as a makayim. That is absolutely not once in Tanakh you find God referred to that way. And therefore we can't say that makayim is a reference to Hashem. And he says, what does acher mean? If you're referring to God as the makayim, just say the makayim. He doesn't like it. He doesn't accept it as a valid shot at all. Of course, what the Ibn Ezra is ignoring is, in other words, if we're saying, if we're starting out by acknowledging that Mordechai is not writing down the name of Hashem explicitly because he's afraid of what the response would be by the chroniclers to when they're going to write over the story and they're going to use a, the name of their gods, the name of their idols. So therefore, the, the, the idea would be that maybe Mordechai subliminally, subtly, quietly hid the references to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So he throws out Mokayim, but he ignores Melech. Melech would be the next obvious, or the most obvious one, right? Chazal already pointed out that when it says Melech in the Megillah, that it's referring to HaKadosh Baruch We have a Medrash. The Medrash says, that Rabbi Yudam and Rabbi Levi b'shem Rabbi Yechman k'amlag b'shem Rabbi Megillah l'melech ha'chashverosh v'melech ha'chashverosh ha'gaz ha'medaber whenever it says melech ha'chashverosh it refers to the king ha'chashverosh whenever it refers to just the king without saying ha'chashverosh um, to modify it so then it is a reference to HaKadosh Baruch this the Ibn Ezra ignores. This the Ibn Ezra doesn't discuss. The one Melech that he does discuss that may be a reference to Hashem is, of course, the very famous That Melech, right, which the Gemara Radio Megillah tells us that who is that Melech? That Melech is a reference to the Gemara says in Megillah that that uh, pasuk when it says it's referring to HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as a word, wasn't able to uh, sleep. Again, that, that's a very difficult term to say. We, we don't mean it in an anthropomorphic kind of a way. Whatever it means, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wasn't um, resting. That's one of the opinions of the Gemara. But over there, at least, the Ezra has who to rely on not to accept this as, a, as the Pashup Shad. Because if you look carefully in the Gemara, there, that's just one opinion. The Gemara there brings down three opinions. The Gemara says one opinion is it's referring to Hakadosh Baruch It's a reference to the upper and the lower spheres. And Rava says It's referring to Hakadosh himself, which is the simple reading of the pasuk. That's what we're talking about. is not able to sleep, and then they read him the book of the Chronicles, and that's all we're talking about—the simple reading. So um, over there, the Ibn Ezra says again that in the drash on that Melech. Yes, it refers to Malkish Oilam. But he says the real simple understanding is that the reason that he couldn't sleep is is referring to the king himself. And the reason he couldn't sleep isn't because because the heavens were awake. The reason he couldn't sleep was simple because he was concerned that perhaps he owed a debt to someone. So what we're seeing from here so far is that Mordechai avoids writing the name of Hashem in the Megillah because he doesn't want uh, the chroniclers to copy the Megillah and replace the name of Hashem with the name of of uh, their God. So therefore, Kvayit Hashem Haster Dovar, hide, don't talk about the name of Hashem. But Ibn Ezra is not willing to accept that he subliminally referred to God, whether in the word of Melach, whether in the word of Makayim. For the Ibn Ezra, Hashem is not in the Megillah. He's truly not in the Megillah, and even in a subtle way. Um... I'd like to, so this is one fundamental point of the Ibn Ezra. Second fundamental point of the Ibn Ezra and the Megillah is in relation to Mordechai. Who was Mordechai? 
We know Chazal think that Mordechai was from the Sanhedrin, that he is one of the, the members of the of the Sanhedrin because we have a Pasuk that talks about Mordechai Bilshan, the Gemara Menachas tells us that he had another name of Psachia, that he was in charge of the of the birds in the base Hamikdash. And, and the reason he's called Psachia was because he had the ability to speak all the 70 languages. And and the reason that, that comes up is because the Gemara brings down there a story of three ladies who came in with different bird offerings and the, the, the regnant understanding of why these women were there and what they were saying was that they needed a chatas, but, but Psachia, who's again according to Chazam Mordechai Bilshan, understood what they really were saying. And since he was such a deaf and so a de- um, expert in, in this, that's why we are sort of taking the opinion that this person, this Psachia, who was appointed on the Kenan is really Mordechai, and this is Mordechai Bilshan, who was on Sanhedrin, who was an expert in 70 languages because he was able to read through what these women were saying. That's the Gemara. And the Gemara says, well, what's, like, in other words, what's the big deal? That this guy, Psachia, understood what these women were saying. Everybody on the Sanhedrin was required to speak 70 languages. It's the famous Gemara B'Yechman says that in order to get on the court, in order to be on the Supreme Court, in order to be on the Sanhedrin, you had to be wise. You had to be good-looking. You had to be tall. You had to be um, aged. You had to, you know, not, not be so young. And you had to also be an expert in magic. These are all the requirements, the basic requirements, in order to be able to get on to the Sanhedrin. So what's such a big deal with this Psachia? The fact that he's an expert in languages? Okay, Yashikaya, what's the big deal? So the Gemara explains... Because he wasn't just simply able to understand the language, he was able to play around. He understood them so well. He was able to use one against the other. He was a he, he was fantastic at the languages. Not just simply understood them uh, in a rudimentary way. And that's the proof of that is Mordechai Bilshan. He's called Mordechai Bilshan, which is a reference to the idea that he was an expert in language. That's Chazal's understanding of who Mordechai is. That is not the understanding according to the Ibn Ezra. Mordechai is not an expert in languages. How he understood Bixan and Teresh's plot, he doesn't know. He's not going to give you an opinion about that. How he found out, how he cottoned on to their plot, we don't know. But to say that he was an expert in languages because of Mordechai Bilshan for the Ibn Ezra, that falls on its face as a matter of shot. The Ibn Ezra says, well, I look at the Pasuk there, you can look at both the Nehemiah and Ezra. It comes in different order. He's either the fifth in the order or the sixth in the order. Although even though says he's the third in the order, that doesn't seem to fit in the Psukim. But in any event, if you look at the Psukim there, you see that along with the people that came up with Zerubbabel, one of those people was Mordechai. Mordechai came up with Zerubbabel. And it says, Mordechai Bilshon. Says the Ibn Ezra, Bilshon is just another guy. Bilshon is not Mordechai's second name. And no one there has a second name. It's just Mordechai has one name. The same with the other people had only one name. And Bilshon is another guy. The Pazik there says that Shabbat Zerubbabel, those that came up with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Saroya, Ralia, Mordechai, Bilshan. That's it. Bilshan's the name. Why doesn't it say U Bilshan? That's a question. Why doesn't it say the Vav? That's what we normally do at the end of a count. Not clear why, why, why it doesn't do that. But in any event, according to the Ibn Ezra, Bilshan is just another name. Just another guy who came up. But you see, Mordechai came up. So it, then that means that according to the Ibn Ezra, well, there's two points here to take away. One we'll focus on in a moment, right? Which is that Mordechai came up with Zerubbabel to the land of Israel. So we're going to get back to that. But what he's saying is if Bilshan is not connected to Mordechai, Bilshan is just another guy. So then there's no proof that the Mordechai was an expert in languages. Certainly no proof that he was on the Sanhedrin. Or that he was in charge of the birds in, in the Beis Hamikdash or any of that. So then who was he? But the Ibn Ezra is a wise man. He was an important person. He was obviously important because of the fact that he was going up to the land of Israel with Zerubbabel. So obviously he had a certain level of importance. Um, but, but to extrapolate from the level of importance that he had to say that he was there for a member of the Sanhedrin, that he's not willing to do. So according to the Ibn Ezra, Mordechai was from the G'dayle Yisrael. But that is all that he is willing to do. Now, in relation to the fact that Mordechai may be a, from the family of, of Binyamin, because it says 
that Ish Yudai B'shushan Rabbi Yishbar Mordechai Ben Yor Ben Shimi Ben Kish Ish Yemini, right? Sounds like he's Benjamite, Yemini, and he's from Kish, and we know Shol Ben Kish. The Ibn Ezra doesn't like that at all. He says, look, if he was really from Binyamin to say Kish and not to say Shol, that doesn't make any sense. Shol was far more important than Kish, the first king of Israel. That's who should have been mentioned and not Kish. So he doesn't like that. He thinks that Ish Yehudi um, probably refers to the fact that he does come from the tribe of Yehuda. Um, that he's willing to, to accept. And we see that that he, uh, not get to the second point, we see that he went to uh, the land of Israel to rebuild it, right? After the Cyrus, after Kuresh had given his proclamation, allowed the Jews to go back, so Zerubbabel goes back. They attempt to start building up the temple. They have to promise the Samaritans, etc. Without getting to all that history, practically, what that means is that Mordechai, who had come uh, up from uh, the lands of Bavel, who had come from the Goyla, back to the land of Israel, in order to help rebuild, um, somehow ends up back in Shushan, somehow ends up back in Persia. So what happened? Says the Ibn Ezra, what happened is, is that it didn't work out. The the temple wasn't wasn't built um, right. It has to wait till later, till till it's finally rebuilt. They had trouble again with the Samaritans, etc. So the Mordechai, when he sees that the temple is not being really rebuilt, so he goes back home. Well, what this means then is the way that he is situating the story is that that Mordechai written in Zerubbabel and written in, I'm sorry, that Mordechai in Ezra and in Nehemiah is the same Mordechai in our Megillah. Whether or not that's true or not. Is not clear, but that's what the Ibn Ezra is saying. So therefore, if that Mordechai in Ezra and in Chemiah is our Mordechai in the Megillah, then it means that this story is situated according to what the Ibn Ezra is learning after Zerubbabel. If it takes place after Zerubbabel, that means that there's already been some aspects of Yeshua, some aspects of Geula for the Jewish people. It's not in full, it's not total, they don't yet have a full temple and all of that. This is true, but it is something. There's already... A glimmer of hope, the 70 years of, 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 of the prediction of the, of the bias of not being rebuilt for a time has now receded. There is now a hope. There is now a change. The change is, is that this new king of Cyrus, of, of Kuresh, has allowed the Jewish people to return. It hasn't worked out appropriately. It hasn't worked out great. So maybe it's a very faint glimmer. But life is or was getting better, and and unfortunately for Mordechai, it doesn't go all the way, right? It does not. It's not a full redemption. So therefore, he goes back, right? So it's sort of uh, sniffed out, not to its total ex- existence, but it's sniffed out enough that Mordechai doesn't see a future left in the land of Israel. So he goes back. But at least what you've seen um, in situating the story this way was that there was already a glimmer of a redemptive uh, uh, option, that it wasn't just so bleak. That they had had a chance. It didn't work out 100%. They're going to obviously have to regroup and get another chance. But there was a, a chance, and Mordechai uh, had taken that chance. It didn't work out, so he comes back. That is how the, the context of the story is for the Ibn Ezra. Obviously, there are those who think that it came before. Uh, courage before Zerubbabel that this story happened before, perhaps, but that's not how the Ibn Ezra is looking at the story. So we 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 now go to the place of understanding of understanding the uh, the the Ibn Ezra's um, uh, approach in the beginning of the Megillah. The Megillah tells us that etc. He makes a whole party. Why is he making a party? So the Imnesh doesn't give us all the detail that we see in Chazal about Achashverosh and his origins. We don't know. But it sounds from the Ibnesh that Achashverosh was somebody who had to consolidate power. Right? We know from the text itself it's obvious. We don't need much help here. That in relation to the prior power, the Babylonian power that existed prior to the Persian Median Empire, that their seat of power existed in Bavel. This new seat of power exists in what we call Elam, and uh, this in the, in the capital of Shushan. It's a different area. It's a different place. That means this is a new kingdom. This is a new empire, new power, 
and they've moved their state capital, they've moved their headquarters to a different place. That is what we are seeing when we see Achashverosh. Now, whether or not it was Achashverosh, did maybe it was somebody who came before him, it's not so relevant. The point is, Achashverosh is ruling in a place, he's consolidating power. He's able to make a party in the third year. At this stage, he has the requisite confidence in himself. He has taken on the mantle of power and has been able to to weed out or remove or somehow placate, pacify all of his enemies. And now he is in charge. So once that is you know, once it's done, once all the consolidation is finished, so now we can afford to have a party. But what's the precipitating reason for having the party? Even if it doesn't say that the precipitating reason for having the party was because of the fact that the wars were finished and he had really consolidated power. No, he says the, 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 the apex of the consolidation of power was marrying Vashti. That is to say, perhaps, he doesn't say this to Ibn Ezra, so I'm embellishing a little bit, perhaps the consolidation of power's apex was marrying Vashti. In other words, he does say he marries Vashti at the end. At the end of these three years, he marries Vashti. And he also says that he finishes fighting the wars after the three years. That I'm now combining those two things together. He's saying that the, the wars finished in the third year. He married Vashti then. And I'm saying that perhaps, and this is my embellishment, perhaps that's why he married Vashti. In other words, to try to bring Chazal together with the Ibn Ezra, that Vashti is really a descendant of the prior, uh, you know, hegemonic ruler of the of, of the Babylonian Empire of Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar and all of that world, that would be the that would be the 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 sort of the apex, the the linchpin of of that power consolidation, right? Because if he's now been making sure that all of his enemies from in and out are gone. And now he is firmly ensconced in the in, in power, the 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 uh, sort of the cherry on the cake, the is marrying the the daughter, the granddaughter of the previous of the previous king. If that's true, and again, the Ibn Ezra doesn't say this part. That that was just my embellishment. But if that's true, then you could then understand why why. He gets so upset. Why Achishverosh gets so upset when she refuses to come to the party, right? The Ibn Ezra says that she refused to come to the party because either it's um, it's uh, um, she thought he was drunk, um, or and or um, it was against the custom, against the custom for her to appear in such a way. After all, uh, in these sort of you know cultures, the woman is generally closeted, is generally hidden from view. It, we're talking about even Achashverosh himself, right? At the beginning, all the different lines of the Ibn Ezra as to how Achashverosh himself um, refused to let people get such a view of him. And and now he's going to be such a populist and have her at the party. It seems like a contradiction. So, again, with the embellishment point, not, the Ibn Ezra is not saying this at all. The Ibn Ezra just says that the reason she didn't appear at the party was because either she thought he was drunk and it was a drunken man's request not to be honored, or because of the fact that it was inappropriate, it was against the custom. Um, we'll come back to that in a second, but uh, on my embellishment point, if we can tie Chazal and the Ibn Ezra together, then that would mean that once he consolidated power, the the cherry, the icing on the cake, is that he is now marrying the king, the, the king of the previous empire's daughter. That really that really shows that he's made it, right? Um, and that's there's no more remnant of the prior authority. It's now been sort of consolidated within his power. But then, if she refuses to come to the party, then you understand why that's a tremendous, re, you know, potential revolt, right? That's a that's an easy rebellion to to see because she's saying, no, I don't have to listen. You're not the dominant authority. I, as the as the heiress to the prior kingdom, still have a say. So you can see how that becomes a tremendous, tremendous. Um, challenge to his rule. And anyway, going back to the point about what the Ibn Ezra said, that the reason that she doesn't come to the party is because either she thought he was drunk or because she thought it was inappropriate to the mores, to the to morals, to the customs of the time. The customs of the time su- suggest as much that the woman is not to be seen 
in public, and now you're saying I should go parade myself in public. Forget Chazal about how she's supposed to be dressed or not dressed, just to simply be going around like that. So then it becomes interesting because the Ibn Ezra says that the Gezerah, that they, that they, you know, they gave this proclamation that they promulgated around to all the different parts of the kingdom was that they said that that a man is supposed to be the rule, the ruler in his family. The man is supposed to be the the ruler of the roost, and and that is to the effect of 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 anything and everything. Says the Ibn Ezra, what does it mean? Why do we say these two, it sounds like a weird gezera, a weird proclamation to send around. He's, a man should be the shayra so he should be the ruler in his house. And every person should speak his language. What does it have to do? What does speaking your own language have to do with the man being the leader in his house? Says the Ibn Ezra, you could understand them as potentially being two separate gezeras. But before we get to that, the other option for the Ibn Ezra is, you know what it means? A man should be the ruler in his house, so much so that he shouldn't give even any quarter to his wife, even in the way they speak. If the wife speaks a different language or a dialect, don't give her any quarter. She needs to learn how to speak your language. Which would then be a way of saying that you've got it wrong, Vashti, right? You thought that your customs are the way you view appropriate custom is to um, for women not to you know parade themselves around so you thought you were obeying your custom no there's an overarching custom like many times in life right there's a, a question of competing values and value number one is that a wife must listen to her husband and that is that in all intents and all circumstances there's no exceptions to the rule and the man shouldn't give any quarter to his wife and shouldn't show any flexibility even to speak her language, even to, to um, you know, show flexibility in terms of understanding who she is and her customs and how she speaks. No, zero. And that's the connection of putting these two gezeras, these two proclamations in one gezera, that a man should be the ruler in the house and the woman, I'm sorry, and, and should speak his own language Meaning, don't give any quarter. Not even in the way you speak, don't give her any a bit of making it easier. That would be one approach of the Ibn Ezra. The other approach of the Ibn Ezra connects to my embellishment before. That is, the Ibn Ezra says they're really two different gazeras. They're not related to each other. One is, the man is supposed to be the ruler in the house. And the second one is, the woman ought... Uh, I'm sorry, and the second one is, is that a man should speak... Every man should speak his language. Nothing to do with in the house, just in general. Every culture ought to have their own language. Um, and, um, you know, sort of a precursor to the uh, all the various dialects, Ebonics, etc., that you find today. Every language gets, every dialect gets their, gets their day. And nobody is to say, oh, well, everyone has to speak English. No, you have uh, numerous nationalities, numerous dialects. Everybody gets their day. Everybody gets their say. Everybody gets their education in their dialect, and their language. Okay, that's a legitimate a legitimate policy goal. We see that you know, in, in certain situations. Uh, today, maybe that's more popular in America. Years ago, it was more popular to force everybody to learn English. But today, everybody should be able to speak their language and learn in their language. Fantastic. So there's certainly a public policy goal that can be realized, and it's rational, and, and there are certain times and epochs where people want to do that. Um, says the Ibn Ezra... That wasn't really what was going on here. The reason that they were in this area, the reason that they mixed these two gazeras together wasn't because like it's in Congress where they have to have an omnibus kind of a bill where they you know, have to pass a bill with like random things that have nothing to do with what the bill's title is, but they're putting it in because the only way it's going to get through is if it's part of an omnibus that everybody has to vote on and no one's going to take the chance to... to, to vote the wrong way on that bill, so they'll append things that have nothing to do with the bill in order to get it through. That's modern America and, 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 and how they pass laws in the Congress. But this is not what's going on with the king, Achashverosh. The reason, says the Ibn Ezra, that he uh, appends this other part of the proclamation of, of every person speaking their language 
and part of parcel of this wider proclamation that every man is supposed to be the ruler in the house, says the Ibn Ezra, you know why that is? Because of the fact that this was a guise, this was a way of hiding his other gezera. His other gezera, that a man should be the ruler in the house, is quite embarrassing. So therefore, it gets hidden in this wider thing about every man should be able to speak his language. That becomes a huge public policy initiative of understanding the root of each nationality, of each sect, of each dialect, and giving everybody their day, not giving short shrift to any specific nationality. So that becomes the, a major proclamation, and therefore, as uh, as leaves Achashverosh not having to eat so much humble pie by announcing that effectively his wife um, defied him and his wishes. Again, this fits nicely with our embellished point that we said before, which is, which is that if Achashverosh is actually marrying somebody from can, with connections to the prior kingdom as an understanding of Chazal, and then that person is defying him. So what they're effectively doing is challenging the idea that this person, this Achashverosh, is really consolidated power. Because if you have a woman, your wife, who's from a deeper root of power than you, and she's not intimidated by it, she's willing to say no to you, that means that there is still an independent power construct outside of you, and therefore it's a challenge to your kingdom, fundamentally. Um, it's an existential challenge to your kingdom. So therefore, Achashverosh needs to be able to quash that. He, he quashes that by getting rid of, of Vashti. But then the challenge becomes... At the end of the day, yes, you got rid of Vashti, so you you got rid of the local challenge, but still what happened, happened. And people will hear about it, and people won't be afraid of you, and will be willing to defy you. So then it comes out that what Akashverish does is he takes what she had done, and um, this is the advice of Mamuchan, right? It's, uh, it's a genius, an ingenious way of, of restating or reframing the problem, because what he said was... It's not just on you, it's on everyone that the, 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 the way of life has been challenged by what Vashti has done. This is a feminist movement that needs to be quashed because now all, now all the women in the, in the palace, in the towns, in the cities across, they're all going to be going against their husbands. So it, it becomes a situation of of uh, a feminist revolution that the king now has to quash. So it wasn't a rebellion, a revolt against him. It was against everybody. So that gave him a nice a nice way to be able to um, have uh, what would have been a fundamental and existential challenge to his rule now be reframed as a feminist revolution. That's not against him at all. It's actually against all husbands. And therefore, he's coming out. So, uh, in this way, um, in sort of my, in this approach that I'm sharing with you, as opposed to the Ibn Ezra, we're both getting to the same place, which is it gave Achishverish a ladder to climb down. Either the ladder to climb down was by Nabigness Arev in the proclamation, this idea that each person should speak their language, which then gives it makes the omnibus bill much wider and makes it uh, not seem or as, a, as referring specifically, it's not a bill of attainment that's referring specifically to his problems with his wife at home, or the way I'm saying it, by even putting out this idea of by making that into the issue, uh, the, the issue is feminism, and not Achishverish's actual seat of power, and not his actual hold on power, they're both accomplishing the same thing. Both of these are accomplishing the same point, which is giving Achishverish a way out, that he wouldn't be so humiliated, he wouldn't have such a threat to his kingdom. So we continue on, and again, as we said, that Achashverosh makes the party because he had married Vashti. So if he had married Vashti as the apex, as we said, as the climax of his power, and now um, it's being threatened in effect by her refusal, so we, 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 can, we have explained why that proclamation goes out as it does. It's not a challenge to him what she did. It's really a challenge to all men, and therefore there needs to be a, a resolution on this, and all men need to understand their place, their role, which again, going back to the Ibn Ezra, means not to give any quarter to the wife, not even to show any flexibility in the way you speak. All right. Now we go to the next point of the Ibn Ezra. Again, a fundamental point of the Ibn Ezra is that the Ibn Ezra feels 
that the town of Shushan is a majority Jewish town, um, which is very interesting. Um, he makes the argument because he says it's clear that issue the Ayah Shushan Abira, who was already a person living in Shushan, Mordechai lived in Shushan, he didn't live elsewhere in the kingdom. Shushan is, is near Elam, he says that that's where Mordechai initially had gone back to. And, and this, for the Ibn Ezra, explains many of the Psukim that when you have all these Jews that we say in the end of the Megillah, right? Um, that the Jews who are Nimsim Bishushan. What do you mean, there are Jews who are found? Why are the Jews in Shushan? Because the Jews are are very prevalent in Shushan. Shushan is a place where many, many, many Jews live. In fact, the town is majority, majority um, uh, Jewish. So you have a palace, you have a palace town, right, where the kingdom is. And in that town live the majority of Jewish people, presumably because it's good, you know, it's good for business, it's good for politics, good for power. That's why the Jews are living in the capital city. My issue um, with this is that even though the Ibn Ezra does say this and says it many, many times throughout the Megillah, the reality is I, I, I find it, I struggle with, with hearing this as a, um, as, as a good shot. And, and the reason for that is a fewfold. Um, how is it possible that, um, that Esther could you know, sort of fake her way through if the town of Shushan is majority Jewish, and she's from Shushan, right? Because presumably they rounded her up um, in Shushan. So even if they didn't know who she was, they, they could have assumed, right? Because remember how the Megillah says that Esther never said who her nation was. Right, she never said her origins. She never said her, her, her who, who she was in essence. Why not? We'll get to that in a second. But, but Mordechai told her not to say. Um, I don't understand. If her paper said that she was picked up in Shushan, she doesn't say who she is. But you can make an assumption. If she's from Shushan, the majority of the town, if Shushan is, is Jewish, then shouldn't she be able to make an assumption that she's Jewish? That seems to me to be the most fundamental question on the Ibn Ezra. That if she was really taken in Shushan, which makes sense, if Mordechai is living in Shushan, because Ishu Shushan Abira, that Mordechai was there before this whole story of Esther took place. That's where he is. That's where presumably she is. So why wouldn't they make the assumption to say that she's from the Rive of that town, that she's probably Jewish? Why wouldn't they say that if Mordechai is coming to see her every every single day, and everyone knows that Mordechai is Yehudi? And you say, okay, maybe they, maybe somehow Mordechai, uh, um, you know, and Esther's connection wasn't wasn't a hundred percent close. Maybe it wasn't obvious. Somehow they picked her up in the town, and it wasn't obvious that she was related to Mordechai. And they know who Mordechai is. According to the Ibn Ezra, Mordechai is really important. That's why he went to go live in Shushan. He was important, that's why he said he went to Barzirubaval, and he was important, that's why he's living in Shushan, that's why he's living in the capital city. So I, I've, I struggle with this. For the Ibn Ezra, Mordechai is very important, that's why he lives in Shushan. That's why he can't leave Shushan. According to the, according to the Ibn Ezra, Mordechai is not able to leave Shushan. Why? Because we have to get the king's permission. It's sort of like Yosef in the end of Parshas Vayechi. So, so he wants to go uh, bury his father. So he sends messengers to Parai. And he says that my father commanded me that uh, I have to bury him in Israel. I can't bury him here. So Paris says, okay, you can go. But he had to first ask permission. You can't just leave. When you're an important persona in, the, in, in this kind of a world, you can't just take your leave. You have to ask permission. So if Mordechai is known as he's an important, great, people, great person from the Jewish people, and he lives in Shushan, and the majority of the town in Shushan is Jewish, and every single day is going by the palace and see how Esther's doing. And Esther's taken from Mordechai, he's taken from Shushan. It boggles the mind how they couldn't put two and two together and realize that Esther is probably Jewish. So I find this shot of the Ibn Ezra very difficult to accept. I, I can't see how this works as a matter of shot. I want to move on to another Ibn Ezra, another uh, important Ibn Ezra. So uh, as we pointed out, the, 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 um, the king... As married Vashti, she refused to go to the party because it was against the custom or was uh, 
Um, she thought it was kind of a request from a drunken man that didn't deserve to be honored. In any event, uh, at the end of the day, he uh, gets rid of Ashti, and Zachas Vasti versus He remembers what happened, and he decides to put together a beauty contest, and eventually marries Esther. Esther, for the Ibn Ezra, um, is is very aware of the cliche that less is more. So she doesn't say anything to um, to anybody about her origins. She doesn't put on any makeup. She doesn't do anything. And, and thereby sort of increases the interest that people have in her. And eventually, Ahasuerus' interest himself. For the Ibn Ezra, why is it that Mordechai doesn't, is so insistent? Again, I find it difficult to agree with the Ibn Ezra's idea that, that the majority of Shushan is Jewish. That seems very, very difficult to substantiate and to justify. But the rest of the Ibn Ezra is very, it makes sense. It makes, a lot of sense as to how this works for the Ibn Ezra. Because he says that why is it that Mordechai is not telling, uh, why, I'm sorry, why is Mordechai telling her not to tell anyone who she is? He's, he's commanding her, don't do this. Don't tell anybody who you are. So, and he says there are those people that say Mordechai did something wrong. He shouldn't have done this. Um, there are those that say, no, Mordechai did something right by, not, by, by making her sure that she wouldn't tell anyone. He was giving her a chance. Right to be able to get married to the king because he knew Benavua that she was, uh, you know, the Mashiach Shal Yisrael. She knew that he knew that the saving of the Jewish people come through her. Fine, okay. The Ibn Ezra doesn't like any of that. You know why the Ibn Ezra says that Mordechai was so insistent that Esther not tell anybody that she's Jewish, even if presumably it's a rive, even though presumably majority of the people around here are Jewish. You're from the majority. You're picked up in this town. There's a good chance you're probably Jewish. But you don't know for sure. You don't know with certainty. And says the Ibn Ezra, the reason that Mordechai wouldn't want her to tell anybody that she was Jewish is because of the fact that he wants her to be able to practice her Judaism in secret. Because if everyone knew she was Jewish, they would be expecting her to do certain things. And they could have been very angry at her. They could have been violent towards her. There could have been problems. It could have been made Ahasuerus not want to marry her. So that's the reason. The reason she kept everything hidden was because she didn't want to play Rebchanani ben Trajan. She wasn't interested in being a martyr on the wide, on, on, you know, on, on the wider scale. Remember that that the Jewish people, again, at this time after Kairish, they've already had some respite. It hasn't worked fully. It hasn't worked to the best in in the land of Israel, but certainly in the land of Bavel, on the land of Parsimade, they lived free or relatively free. They lived well, says Mordechai. If you're going to go in there and act with all your Jewish customs, it could potentially um, irk a lot of people. Therefore, don't. Therefore, don't. Why? Because, you know, it may it may sort of impinge on, on your health and your safety and your well-being. Maybe people will not like you. Maybe people will do something negative towards you. That is the approach of the Ibn Ezra as to why Mordechai was insistent that she not talk about um, who she was. She wasn't married to Mordechai, according to the Ibn Ezra. According to the Ibn Ezra, maybe Mordechai wanted to marry her one day, but they weren't married. And in fact, she was a basula, and that's the reason he was so insistent to try to protect her, um, to ensure that you know that um, that no harm would come to her. So the, for the Ibn Ezra, the, the, again, the majority of this town is Jewish, right? And he is an important persona. That's why he lives in the capital city. He doesn't have permission to leave. He has to hang around by the king at his beck and call. But because of that, he has the ability to always be near the palace. He has the ability to always be coming and going. And so therefore, he's always hanging around. And he has sort of, you know, the freedom to, to do so because of the fact that he's an important person. And for the Ibn Ezra, then we come to the question of why doesn't he bow down to Hamar? Why doesn't Mordechai bow down to Haman? At the end of the day, um, there's nothing wrong with bowing down to to a person. Ibn Ezra doesn't say this, but, but we see Avram bowed down to the Bnei Ches. We see that the uh, we see that um, you know the brothers they bow down to Yosef. They didn't know who he was. We, we see that people bow down to to non-Jewish people. It's not a it doesn't seem to be any issue at all says the Ibn Ezra. The issue, and here, so we've shown all these examples of where he doesn't take 
Chazal, of where he doesn't take what Chazal say as being the Pshat. But not over here. Over here, the Ibn Ezra is very clear that the reason that Mordechai is not bowing down is very, very, very uh, much due to the fact that he has made himself into a Gechka. He's lo yichra, he's lo he's not going to bow down an iota. Why? Because he has a, he has a tzalem on him, he has a gechka on him. right, lo he's not therefore able to, to bow down. So then you say, okay, so he can't bow down because he's a gechka. Let's, let's not debate that point halakhically right now. But if that's true, he can't bow down because he's a gechka. So you say, okay, so he should leave. Don't irk, don't irk the man, just leave. But he can't leave. It's a cash 22 for him. Why? Because of the fact that the king doesn't let him go. He's an important person. He's needed for the running of the kingdom. So he's not allowed to leave. So he's not allowed to leave. And at the same time, he can't bow. So he's stuck in a terrible cash 22. He's stuck in a terrible situation. But you end up in a situation where for the Ibn Ezra, that's the reason that he didn't bow. And that's the cause for the whole story to take place. But he was justified in his not bowing. It's interesting because, in a sense, it sort of mirrors what we say later on about the destruction by the second temple, about the Gemara says in Gittin, about the Sechair ben Afkulis, who also refused to, um, in a sense, bow down. He had a, an option. They could bring a carbon that had a moon, um, and therefore, as it were, um, face God's wrath. Or not to bring a carbon and face the Roman governor's wrath. What do you do? Either way, it's a, it's a very difficult situation. So that is what the Ibn Ezra says that Mordechai was faced with. So I know we're getting a little bit short on time. So I'll just say for how the Ibn Ezra says that Mordechai, the end of the Megillah, how the conclusion is. Because Mordechai is only beloved by some of the Jewish people. The Pasuk says that um, he wasn't beloved by everyone now Ibn Ezra says something here that I think is very deep in terms of human understanding says the Ibn Ezra, it's simply not possible for a person to be beloved by everyone a person cannot be so populist in nature that everyone will take a liking to him Yes, maybe there's, you know, um, people that are more popular than others. But no one has the ability, when they wield power, to be able to be beloved by everyone. And therefore, he's only wrought to the Rav Echav, which fits very nicely with the understanding of... of, of um, it fits very nicely with the understanding of Moshe and their respective description of the mourning of the Jewish people upon their deaths, right? Because we know that when it came to Moshe, the Pesach of right? They, they cried, the Jewish people cried, but by Aaron it says, right? All of B'nai Yisrael, not just B'nai Yisrael. And the Mepharshim already picked up that there's a difference. And what's the reason for that difference? Was it because Moshe Rabbeinu is the leader and he needs to be feared and respected. And Aaron is not the leader. He is very important. He's number two, but he's not the leader. And therefore, his job, you know, just forget Chazal, forget the idea of Shalom, just his job is very important, but he's not sitting in that seat of power. And so, as therefore, since he's not sitting in such a seat of power, therefore, he had the ability to be beloved by more, to be beloved by all. Whereas Moshe Rabbeinu has to make difficult decisions. He has to take, uh, take a path that's not always the most easy. So, therefore, he's only going to be beloved by some. Um, maybe by a majority, but certainly not by all. So this is the approach of the Ibn Ezra. Again, the embellished shot would be the one I've shared in, the, in, in a few years ago um, from uh, um, Yashar uh, of, uh, of Italy, right? It was uh, in the 1800s. Um, uh, he was uh, from the Maskilum of the day, and he suggested that maybe the reason that Mordechai was only beloved by some, or maybe by majority, but, but not by all, 
I'm sorry. The, uh, when I say some, that's wrong. The Pasuk says, He was, he was more, or he was appreciated. He was beloved by the majority of his people, but not by all of his people. Um, and the reason for that, says the um, Yashar, was because of the fact that maybe people disagreed with the with the construct that he couldn't bow down. Um, in other words, by Zechariah, and of course, you could disagree. Rabbi Kiva said, What you did, is no question. It wasn't a question of competing values. This is not a Bikuach Nefesh Doich Shabbos question. This is a Bikuach Nefesh of all the Jewish people. Of course, it's Doich Baal Mum being Makav on the Mizbeach. What are you thinking? If Mordechai was so worried about Esther's um, telling anybody about who she is, because if her identity her becomes known, maybe she'll be in danger. Well, what about you, Mordechai? You're, 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 as it were, sticking your nose out in the middle of of of, of the uh, you know the the public square in a way that's going to really infuriate the number two guy in the kingdom. And you say you have no choice. Okay, so you don't have a choice. You you have to be out there in the public square. You don't have a choice. You can't bow because it's um, because it's against the law. You can't bow to a getchka. Again, technically, halachically, maybe that's not an issue if somebody's wearing a getchka. But let's say he assumes that it is. But if you're causing pikuach nefesh for the whole people, certainly that would be uh, something that, um, at least for the rest of the people, no, whoever else was important, if there were any others, not clear, they had no issue with. So you are essentially taking a decision. That's endangering the entire people. This is not because nefesh of one person. Maybe you say, okay, this is one of the big three affairs. You know, you know, you know, it's a hard body But in a situation where you've now put into danger the entirety of the Jewish people, perhaps you should come to a different answer. And that's why he was only wrote to the Ravach of Anat for all of his people. This is a, a bit of an introduction into the commentary of the Ibn Ezra on on. Miguel Sester, a fairly important, a fairly important. Recording stopped.